Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at WonderCon in Anaheim and is hosted by Sony's Chris Parnell, uh, who's great. You guys remember him from our executives panel. Uh, It's a terrific group of writers. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this podcast. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast in general, please do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes. Also, like the page on Facebook, facebook.com slash nerdistwriterspanel. That's kind of the only place where I can tell you about upcoming live episodes, of which there are some, both in L.A. and we're going to do some in New York in the fall. So go like us on Facebook. Leave a review on iTunes. It, it always makes me uh, feel good when I'm feeling sad. I read those reviews because you guys are so nice. And you are so nice for continuing to listen. Thank you for it. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blecker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now so this will be the end of the theme. I'd like to thank uh, Altman and the gang for inviting me back. I'm Chris Parnell. Uh, I'm the senior vice president of drama development over at Sony Pictures Television which means I'm a lucky guy who gets to work with writers like these guys uh, every day selling their ideas into scripts, which we try to sell to pilots, which hopefully get made into series. I've been fortunate to work on um, the pilot of Breaking Bad, and most recently um, Blacklist and Helix, um, Powers on PlayStation, which I'm really proud of, um, and uh, Outlander, which debuts tonight. Um, and I'm working on the pilot of Preacher too right now. But uh, let me let me introduce uh, these guys uh, and introduce the panel. Mark Altman uh, worked on the first season of Castle, Necessary Roughness, uh, Creative Femme Fatales, and is currently a supervising producer on Agent X. Steve Melching. Um, Worked on Transformers, Guardians of the Galaxy Animated, Star Wars Rebels, and Star Wars Clone Wars. Jose Molina. Worked on Firefly, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, And currently the co-EP of Agent Carter. Javi Grillo Marswatch. Worked on Middleman, Created Middleman. Come on, buddy. Also worked on Lost. Ashley Miller, uh, who's on the first season of Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, Fringe, Andromeda, is currently writing uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie and Acme with Steve Carell. Sarah Watson is the EP of Parenthood. Love that show. About a boy. Steve Holland. Worked on Rules, iCarly, and now for the past six years has been uh, the co-EP of Big Bang Theory. Jesse Alexander. Worked on the first season of Alias Lost, Heroes, Hannibal. Is currently co-show running Agent X. And Gab Stanton. Worked on Farscape, Castle, Haven, and is now the EP on The Flash. Thank God Narducci is here. I don't know where we'd put Narducci. Hi, guys. So let's talk about what makes this panel a little different. Um, This thing focuses on the awesome task, I think, that is a TV writer's room. Usually writing is a very solitary experience. It's just you in front of your computer. But in TV, we're faced with trying to generate and create sometimes 22 hours of entertainment in nine months. Uh, And that job, usually, can't fall to one person. I don't think it ever can fall to one person. So we have the writer's room. Um, This year we want to focus on uh, working on a first-year season. We'll get to that in a second. But let's just catch everybody up on on what a writer's room is. All right, so let's start shouting out here, guys. So, um, Ah. hey! All right, so... Competitive group therapy. (laughs) Let's go. Why is there a writer's room? Go, Javi. Why can't you do it yourself? Uh, The thing is, uh, the task of creating 22 hours of narrative in in, in such a small period of time, or even 13, is is quite daunting. And the idea is that even when you've got a genius showrunner who can write all 13 hours of it, as has happened once or twice in our existence as an art form, uh, the writer's room is there to really challenge the boundary. Excuse me? My microphone is off. 
off, but I will tell you this. <laughs> there have been moments in history when a single showrunner can write up to 22 episodes of narrative television. However, the job of the writer's room is to make sure he that even that genius doesn't run into the boundaries of their own imagination. Try doing a podcast. You look like Mussolini there. Why don't you, why don't you flip on your microphone? They can hear me. Hello? Hello? There we go. Or just turn it on. There we go. Welcome to turning on the microphone. I've seen Bridget Jones's diary. (laughs) Thanks for the two people in the audience who got that. Is that that the tits pervert moment? Yeah, purple in the front. Sarah, can you can you talk about the collective brain just a little bit of the of the writers room? Just why? How do you how how do you think together? That's that's the that's the that's the big deal, right? Well. That's the challenge, is how do you think together? So in an ideal situation, you're, can everyone hear me? In an ideal situation, you're hiring people with different strengths and weaknesses and all sort of charging towards a collective story. And the great thing about the room is that you're never writing yourself into a corner. Because as soon as you write yourself into a corner and you're like, oh my god, I'm going to kill myself, somebody is like, oh, and then this. You hope. That's, that's, you hope. <laughs> or I would say, or I at least nothing. you're all in it together. You know, the difference between a writer's room, it's, it's very easy to understand and appreciate a writer's room because you have, let's look at Manimal, okay? <laughs> let's use that as an example. Back in the 70s and 80s and before that, you had television, which was largely driven by, you know, a head writer who used a bunch of freelancers. They didn't have rooms. And you had Manimal. You know, now you look at it and you have Breaking Bad. There's a reason that television has gotten so much better because it's taking advantage of a larger brain trust you rather know, than Glenn Larson saying, hey, let's do Pearl Harbor in space. I got to tell you, 40 years later, we're still talking about Manimal, so the jury's still out on Breaking Bad. <laughs> by, by that metric, the most successful show in television artistically is Cop Rock. You know that. <laughs> yeah. Alden, can you talk about the hierarchy in the room? Where's the startup? Where's it go down? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I think it, theoretically it's, it's, you know, obviously um, it's, it's, you have your showrunners and, and then it filters down to, you know, your story editors. And, um, but I think in a good room, you know, everyone's voice is equal, you know, and, and then you have sort of the referee who's the showrunner who's ultimately going to make, you know, be like the umpire. That's a sports thing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, make those decisions. I mean, you know, look, not to, not to kiss Jesse's uh, ass in this, but, you know, when you have a great showrunner, you know, the room... I think everyone feels heard and everyone you know has something to offer and 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 it works really really well which is you know I think certainly the case with the shaman now which is you know Agent X for TNT. Jesse what are the responsibilities of a showrunner? Um you know for me it's it's uh it's like Dungeons and Dragons if anybody's <laughs> played TNT. <laughs> sort of the way that I, I think about it and, and whoever's running the room is kind of the DM and you're sort of like, you know, you have your goals and you have your different people who are on your party and, and you're trying to get everybody to play well together and move keep moving the story forward is how I think and about it. And hopefully you have a good tank that you can send at the board when things are going terrible. And, you can all and, and somehow your wife's character never gets killed. <laughs> A triple threat. I mean, that person's got to be the CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation. They've got to be a manager of people. They have to be the creative head of the uh, of the of the ship. How do you how do you how do you manage all of those three things? I, th- I think for any showrunner, you know, the, the 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 idea is that you have to try to delegate some of that responsibility. And the truth of the matter is. For most showrunners, the, the hardest work is in the writer's room, you know, because that's really where your story is being generated, wherever that writer's room may be. You know, so I think that one, one of the fallacies that I see with a lot of showrunning is that you know, they, they think that they need to be on the set or in post or whatever, when really their job is to, is to communicate a clear vision of the show to the writing staff. You know? And if, if at least the number two in the writer's room knows what the show is, then that writer's room can run appropriately. But it really becomes about when you're a showrunner, what I found when I, when I ran my own show, I found that all of my job could be described in a single way, which is describe your vision to everybody as clearly as possible so that they can execute it. And the more you do that, the more you find that everything in the show, you know, everybody in the show is a professional who knows their job. The more you're able to do that, the more everybody's able to actually do their job well and bring you either what you want or something even better. And not just to the people in the room writing, right? Exactly. To, to who else? Studios and networks <laughs> and all those guys, yeah. Yes. To make sure they don't no, blow up your vision. Well, here's yes? the thing. If, if you know, a studio buys a show, a network buys a show, 
you've hopefully talked to them exactly about the show that you're making, you know. And, and ideally, all of the ships are marching in lockstep. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about network notes, studio notes, and all that. At the end of the day, we're all partners in each other's success. And that really starts at the top of the show, and it starts with the showrunner or the creator of the show with the help of a good showrunner being able to say, here's what we're doing and achieving a consensus with all the involved parties. Uh, and achieving the, that, you know, making all those episodes while the showrunner is trying to do a million different jobs. Ash, I think you were the one that, uh, that put it this way. Your job as a member of that staff is to pitch the showrunner an episode of his series that he didn't know he wanted to do. Yep. That's you, right, Ash? Yeah. Because I, you know, that was my whole job. Um, <laughs> it was it's like, hey, man, you had this amazing idea that you didn't even know you had, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And then you're going to love it so much, you're going to give me money. <laughs> Worked like a charm. It's always great if you can pitch it that way, too. Is, hey, I yeah. think you had this idea. Oh Didn't yeah. you have an idea for a show, an episode yeah. like this? Yeah, we yeah. jumped yeah. off of it. <laughs> well, no, you know, you know what, actually, I mean, but, but Sarah, you can talk about this, because the, the, I, I've always given the Middleman Writers Room incredible props for being better at being me than me. You know, and, and I mean, I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit about that or not. I don't know. It doesn't have to be about me. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, if we'll talk about Javi, I will say, you know, he, this is no surprise. The two greatest showrunners I have worked for could not be more different personally. It's Javier Grigio, Mark Swatch, and Jason Kadams. They have completely different management styles, but the two things they had in common was knowing what they wanted. But I also think that both of you guys are incredibly flexible, and when you hear an idea that from the staff that you absolutely love, you're also willing to, to change what you love and what you want. Yeah, I mean, because if the writer's room is able to do that, it makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to come up with as much stuff, and, and I'm very open to that. You know? so, and I think most showrunners are. They want to hear you improve on what they've come up with, you know? And you respected when we were passionate about things. And then, you, you know, sometimes you would say, no, we're going to go with this direction, but sometimes you would listen to what... Was right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I admit that most of the times when the show sucked, it's because I was wrong. Because you guys are talking right now about a story break, right? Yes. This is breaking story. Gab, yeah, can you just talk, just just give us the an introduction on what is a story break? Gab. Oh, oh. Gab. The other one. Oh, no. oh. A total crisis. What is a story break? Um, a story break is uh, basically you need to do an episode, you need to come up with a story. You sit down together, and this is where the writer's room kind of you know, comes in under whoever is going to be working on that episode uh, and pitches out an idea. It's going to be about this. And depending on whether it's a serialized show or a standalone show, everyone kind of comes together and says, all right, well, if we're going to do the story, you know, what's going to be the beginning, the middle, and the end? And um, the kind of interesting thing about it is by the time you finish uh, up on the board, whether you use a whiteboard or cards or something like that, you've basically broken the story out into six acts, television acts, and beat by beat so that you know what each character is going to be doing and how you're going to be moving the plot forward for every beat of that story. And then uh, sometimes you turn that document into an outline, and then you go off and write a script from it. When the room is pitching those story beats, do they go chronologically? I mean, how, how does a room start sometimes, kicking around? Are you, are you work towards act breaks, or are you just pitching cool scenes? It really People have different kind of ways of doing it. Um, sometimes uh, you definitely kind of go towards act breaks, like big moments that right. you want to find. Um, sometimes you do it by storyline. If you have like multiple storylines, you'll have you'll kind of create stories for each character line and then merge them into kind of one big story. Um, and sometimes it's if you're doing a very procedural show, it's kind of the beats of the crime and the investigation, how you're going to lay those out, and then where you're going to wrap in the relationship stuff around it. Holland, does it work different on a comedy? Um, no, I think it's similar. We actually literally have a board. Of, you know, we have whiteboards around the room, and one of the boards is just headlined "shit that could happen." <laughs> <laughs> and so when we're initially pitching stories, and there's a story that our my boss is interested in, we move the "shit that could happen" board, and you start brainstorming things. And if you can sort of fill that board with enough shit then it's probably a good episode. Some of that stuff will fall away. Sometimes a lot of it will fall away. Sometimes some of it's just scaffolding that gets you a thing. But if you can get excited enough that there's enough things that you can put on that board, then that tends to be a sign that it's a good episode. And then you can move to the other board where you actually have to sort of break it out into beats and see if it's a story that makes sense and if it's character beats that make sense. Right. I feel like V'ger is about to attack. <laughs> Hearing this 
Um, all right, let's, let's get to what we're going to talk about, um, which is working on a first-year show, because a lot of you guys have worked on plenty of first-year shows. Before you get to that, but before you know, we get to year, that, go you on. sit here and ask us questions. Oh, boy. I think we should ask Chris a few questions. Like, what does the studio think? You know? <laughs> what do you think goes on in a writer's room? <laughs> I, think, I think that's why I'm here asking the questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, should I answer? Yeah, please. I, I think that a writer's room is the coolest job in town. There's no doubt about it. I think that the, the, the unimaginable task of creating so much material and pushing that boulder up the hill in so little a time was one of the things you don't realize is it takes eight days to shoot a television show most times, and there's only seven days in a week. So We do it in five. So... <laughs> It's fine. That, it's going to catch up to you. And the rooms that are just truly the most talented are the folks that can continue to think up incredibly imaginative material on time with, you know, and move the story along and get those pages for the, you know, for the actors and the, and the production staff to be able to shoot that day. And sometimes it's tight and sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's, you know, uh, uh, we're all at the edge of our seat. But... It is, and it's just, it's a magical thing. I mean, I do it every day. I watch you guys do it every day. I still don't know how the hell it happens. It's just, it, it, it amazes me. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about it. So in, order, off. in order to work on a first-year show, um, you got to, most times, you shoot a pilot. So before, while we, let's jump into the pilot process just a little bit. Because if we're lucky, I think the pilot is the weakest episode of the series, right? Because goal of the developing a story is to build upon the foundation and hook you into uh, the narrative. So it, how is, Altman, how is developing a pilot and developing a series different, right? Like, what are the goals of a pilot? Well, you know, I think, it, you know, it, it sort of, it, it depends because, you know, you do have these shows now that are straight to series or something like Next Generation back in the heyday, where it's first run syndication, you know, where you had a serious commitment you know, already. So that's sort of, you're establishing the premise for an audience rather than trying to sell a network in a studio. But I guess what you're talking about is a pilot pilot, which is yeah. sort of a, a sales tool. Um, you know, I think it's tough because you're really trying to, uh, to show, you know, all your characters, who they are, what the premise of the show is, and that there's seven years in right. these characters and in the story. Um, and, you know, that it's not true detective. You know, it's not something that has a limited life and then has to be reinvented. So, you know, it's a real challenge. And I think that's why often you have pilots that even after they're bought, you know, a large percentage of the pilot can be reshot before it airs because as the, the writers find the show, the, the pilot can change. You know, and the creators can learn more about the show than they knew, you know, when they were making it. Plus, you know, often you have shows that are shot, you know, far away. You know, maybe it's shot in New York and then it comes to L.A. for the tax credit and you have all these sets. I mean, a lot of times you watch pilots and you're like, that's not their apartment because <laughs> they were shooting at a real house and now they've built the sets and it looks nothing like like the, the, like what it is. So um, it's it's a real high wire act, you know, and I'm sure... I, I, can talk I, I would say like, a, like, like the best description of a pilot, a capsule description, is a pilot is an argument for the existence of a series. That's right. <laughs> you know? Like, if you watch a pilot and you go, I want to watch another episode of this, and I could watch 30 more episodes of this, and the pilot has done its job, which is to create a universe, create a set of characters, and give them a task and a theme that you want to come back and see how that will, if at all, ever resolve itself. And more and more, there are pilots, especially in cable, that don't do that job. And more and more, you guys who are writing your first pilots or, or trying to break in, you go like, well, that's not the way True Detective did it. That's not the way Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Tape, uh, Mad Men, Pick Your Poison. That's not what, what they did. Yeah, those are very. Those are the exceptions to the rule. They're they're coming around a little bit more, because in cable you have more freedom to do uh, more things out of the box. But when you're trying to write your pilot, don't go for the for the really unusual one that just happened to break out and is a huge hit and has 28 Emmys. Uh, to try to do what Javi said and try to do write the blueprint for for the series that people will get immediately. Well, let's talk in a little specific about that. So, Firefly. Right. Whatever you do, yeah, try point. not to be.
be interesting and original. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's like it's easy to look at the madman pilot. I hate pilot. you, Ashley Miller. It's easy. No, it's easy to look at the madman pilot, madman pilot, and think of all the things that are different from every other TV show. If you look at the deep structure of the madman pilot, it is exactly like every other TV show. It is. It is a show about a person's first day at a difficult workplace, just like the ER pilot, just like the Hill Street Blues pilot. Peggy comes to work at Sterling Cooper. They show her around. She learns what the job is. And the great thing Matt Weiner did is make you think that you're watching something revolutionary and different. But the truth of the matter is, is that the pilots in 1967 had the same basic structure as the Mad Men pilot. And that's where the magic is. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> Jose, while we're talking about pilots, I mean, let's, let's just jump into some specifics. So Firefly. Yes. Um, so talk, talk about the pilot of that. Just give us a couple specifics about the pilot of that. And then, you know, the job that the room had right at the top of the show. Because the, you know, the studio and network were considering switching the pilot around, right? Well, that's what ultimately wound up happening. Right, like, what, with, the, with the train job. It's the train job. Yeah, I mean, the what happened with Firefly was... Uh, Fox desperately wanted to be in the Joss Whedon business. So they ordered, uh, they basically asked Joss, what do you want to do? He said, this is what I want to do. They went great. He handed in to our script. They went great. Shoot it. A lot of us are pretty sure that the network and the studio never read that script. <laughs> this is not a joke. A lot of us believe that they just wanted to be in the Whedon business so badly that they just went whatever he wants. Then they saw the pilot and they went, that's not a Joss Whedon show. It's not funny. It's not quirky. It's not Whedon-y. Um, and so they hated it. Um, and they weren't going to pick it up. And in fact, they didn't pick it up. Um, and what happened was they told Joss and Tim the show's not going forward. Joss and Tim were like, what the hell is going on? What do you mean? Um, they gave The network gave their notes. Tim and Joss went away for a weekend, and in the weekend, uh, in three days, basically, wrote what wound up being the pilot for the show, which is an episode, episode two, called The Train Job. Uh, now, the train job had to do a lot of the work that the pilot had done. Set up characters. Set up set characters up while having a very A-team-like mission that was a fastball right down the middle that everybody could get that had the quippy Jaws dialogue and, and gave a much more generic example of what the show would be week in, week out. And they read that script, and they canceled Dark Angel, which is the show I was on. So <laughs> I lost my job because they wrote the train job, and then thankfully I got to go on there. It worked out. All right. It worked out all right. Um, but so then that pilot, which I'm sure you guys have seen, is fantastic. Uh, that pilot didn't air until the it was the very last original episode to air, and they aired it the two it, hour the two hours yeah. the two hour movie in December, like in the middle of our Christmas hiatus. And it set up great characters. Terror. What's that? It set up great characters for the show that you were just about to see. Yes. Right. Um, and it did it over the course of two hours. Um, and uh, But at that point, all the episodes were done and never to be seen again on network TV. Alas. Alas. <laughs> Melching. Hey, um, so when you worked on Clone Wars, did you, you guys didn't have a pilot, right? You went straight to series on that, right? Yeah, we went straight to series, I but... Mean, your pilot know. was Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I can't risky. imagine you know, getting there in a room on that and going, all right, well, how do we carve our own niche in this universe? Well, that, that is a huge task. Yeah, um, I, we didn't have a traditional room on the show at that point. It was our head writer, Henry Gilroy, and our supervising director, Dave Filoni, who were sort of the creative heads uh, under George Lucas, who wasn't as involved in the show at that point. Who's that? <laughs> George who? George who? Um, George R. R. Martin. And they brought in... <laughs> uh, they brought in a couple of us freelancers, and uh, Henry, had, Henry and Dave came up with a story that ultimately became the Clone Wars movie that was going to be a three-part three story right. that Henry and I wrote. And uh, the mandate for the show was a little different in the beginning. It was going to be a little more of a traditional series where you followed the same characters more or less from week to week, Anakin, Obi-Wan, right. Ahsoka. Um, but we realized pretty quickly that it's a big universe out there and there's a lot of interesting characters.
characters, and it became almost an anthology show by the second or third season um, when we realized, you know, I wrote the episode Rookies, which gave the clone troopers individual personalities and stuff like that that really was only hinted at in the movies, and that opened up this whole, uh, you know, panorama of different clone characters they could bring in. They brought in traitors. They brought in, you know, all different kinds of uh, characterizations for them. And then how has your experience changed then on Rebels? I mean... Rebels is a little more... Yeah, that's a little more sort of back to basics. Um, That's a more traditional show where it's centered around a family, the crew of the Ghost uh, ship, and uh, we pretty much follow their adventures from week to week, and we get to explore those characters and their backstories in a lot more detail. And a lot of that was just wanting to build that family feel, and so the audience gets invested in those characters week after week, and part of it was, you know, budgetary realities. Rebels just doesn't have the same budget that Clone Wars had, so we can't afford to build a whole new cast of characters every week in CGI animation and whole new locations and planets and whatnot. It's a great show. Yeah. Um, uh, Ashley, speaking of uh, speaking of trying to uh, create a show based on a format that everyone loves, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, like how w- when you guys got together on the room on that one in the first season, what were the hurdles and obstacles of trying to build out that universe? Um, you know, I, I think that Josh Friedman, who created the show, actually put it best. Ironically, he put it best as we were breaking what turned out to be the very final episode of the show. Um, he said... You started that first? I'm sorry? Yeah. You broke the last episode first? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, it was just, no. It just He didn't quite articulate uh, what the fundamental challenge of that show was until we got to the final challenge. Ah, uh, yes. Um, he, uh, he said, you know... I don't know what this show is. <laughs> but I do know what it isn't. And, you know, there was something about that that was simultaneously horrifying and kind of ball-shrinking. But at the same time, um, you know, it was, it, it was a valuable articulation of, of kind of what the development process was like. And, and frankly, sometimes I think it's better to, to, to know what something is not than to sit and define what something is going to be a priority. Because where we found ourselves at the beginning of the first season and as we moved into the second season was we had this store of knowledge about this franchise, about these characters. We had these ideas about who they were and the things that had happened to them and the things that could happen to them and what things were about. Um, You know, decades of of assigning meaning to iconic images and, and characters and situations from John Connor to Sarah... Um, to, you know, the, the T-1000, you know, all of these things, to what Skynet is. And what it opened up for us was kind of a, a playground. And by knowing what the show wasn't, we were able to establish boundaries that kept us real and kept us grounded so that we could be creative in ways that were useful and interesting. Um, and, you know, working on that show was one of the great creative experiences great. of my career. You know, it's, I, I still look back at that as, as, you know, in terms of how I felt going into work every day, that was the place to be. Um, you know, Warner Brothers uh, told our showrunner, John Worth, who is like one of the great showrunners of all time, unsung, um, uh, you know, they said, you know, you've, you've hired the, the, the room of writers who can't write straight. And, you know, John just said, watch, watch and see. And what that room is able to, to put together was astounding. We called ourselves the island of misfit toys. Um, so, you know, just, just having that, that lack of, of it has to be this um, just really made it possible to do something great. It's great. So I guess the advice we've given so far is don't have an original thought and have no idea what you're going to do with it. The only technique is no technique. My style is no style. There is no spoon. Sarah and... I think what we're saying is spend 20 years learning how to do it and then forget it. Right. Sarah and Steve, too. um, Both the first season shows you guys worked on rules and, and parenthood. 
you know, it relied heavily on a strong ensemble of, yeah. of actors to be able to, um, you know, be able to interpret you guys' work. So can you talk about what it is after, I mean, you, there was a pilot shot for both of those shows, yes. so you had, knew coming in what you were writing for, but talk about writing specifically for actors, especially in an ensemble. And are you going to write on coach? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, obviously, on Parenthood, our ensemble is huge. And um, I mean, I can talk specifically in terms of the pilot because when we shot the pilot, it was with a different actress um, in the in the Sarah Braverman role. And so we ended up, you know, the, when I wrote my first Parenthood episode, I was writing towards one actress, Maura Tierney, who's a very much more heavily dramatic actress and then I that very we she's been public about this so I'm not speaking out of turn she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to drop out of the show and we ended up doing huge reshoots um, with Lauren Graham but I wrote my first episode before we knew that and so I do feel like subsequent parenthood episodes that I wrote I found myself writing that character different because you have that actress in mind. And also, over the years, you start to see how the ensemble, the chemistry works between them. You know, in Parenthood, we're a huge ensemble. And, like, I mean, I was on set, like, season five or something, and um, Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Camille, was in a scene with, I can't even remember who it was. It was, like, one of her kids. She's like, oh, we've never had a scene together before. I was like, oh, my God. You know, it's just... So it's finding, like... So sometimes you don't have that chemistry, like, in your store bank that you've seen, so it is kind of... And you guys are adjusting scenes based on what you're seeing in dailies. What, what you're seeing uh, when you go to set and, and, and seeing the chemistry between actors. And especially on a show like Parenthood because we're not a word-perfect show. I mean, it's like the polar opposite of uh, The Middleman with, um, with Javi. You know, that was a word-perfect show whereas the, if the actors deviated one word, you know, he would, Javi would come out and <laughs> there would be physical beatings. It was pretty awkward. <laughs> but on Parenthood, our actors were given a lot of free reign and so they had a huge part in... in navigating who their characters were. So we would write towards them, then they would either say it or not, and then we'd write towards them more. And is and talk about that in a in a comedic sense on like well, it's interesting you, you, just you, how, you, how you sort of the shows kind of find themselves. Uh, Rules of Engagement, which is a show I was on from the beginning, when we had the first table read of the pilot, the lead actor got fired immediately after the table read. So they had to recast that The lead table read is your last days. audition. Actors yeah, out there. So table read, the actors sit around, and they read it for the first time in front of the network and studio. The main guy gets fired. And so then it was a scramble to recast, so they cast another actor to shoot the pilot, and the pilot got picked up, and then they fired him. <laughs> and then they fired the other actress. So there was, like, Patrick Warburton and Megan Price, they stayed, and the other three actors got fired, some of them twice. So we came into the first season of the show with more than half of a brand-new cast who we had never seen together before. So you're really sort of finding finding what the show is and finding who these actors are. I mean, one of them, David Spade, was brought in. He has a very specific voice, so that's a little bit easier to write to. But the other actors, you're kind of just sort of starting to see what they can do and what they're good at and what they're funny at. And start, you know, in any show, you sort of start tailoring these characters to the actors because you get a sense of, of who they are and what they bring to the character and where their strengths and weaknesses are. Because you're throwing dartboard, the throwing really darts are. at the dartboard creatively until yeah. you see if they can bring it or not, right? You're throwing dartboards and even just that like that weird thing of what an ensemble does together where when it clicks and doesn't click is this weird bit of magic that you can't always tell. Because even Big Bang had an original pilot that got scrapped. So there was there's a Big Bang pilot. You can probably find it on YouTube. It used to be on YouTube. I don't know if it still is. But... Um, Johnny and Jim, were the, they were still Leonard and Sheldon, but the other characters were different, and, uh, and the network passed on it. And, but they liked Johnny and Jim enough, so they gave, they gave Chuck and Bill a chance to sort of rewrite it and do a second pilot. And so, so there was something there that worked, but it wasn't until like, the rest of this ensemble kind of came together that the whole show sort of clicked, clicked in this way that you kind of can't, you know, can't predict. Did they have to wait a year to do the new pilot? They did or? wait a year to oh, do wow. the new pilot, yeah. Yeah, because actually when I was doing the Rules of Engagement pilot, we were looking at John. When we were trying to recast that lead role, Johnny was one of the people we were looking at because I think the Big Bang pilot had just gotten passed on. Yeah, it's funny. Time, we so. were sort of talking about this yesterday. Would we still be talking about Star Trek 50 years later had Jeffrey Hunter not quit? And I, yeah. think, I think probably not. <laughs> you know? And it, it just there's an alchemy to casting that you, know, you just don't know until you see them say the words. And even then, it's not until you see the dailies and really know if they got it, quote-unquote. 
Gab, can, way, you can I just say how much I love the idea of throwing dartboards? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that should be a thing. Actually, like multiple mix <laughs> <laughs> no. Hashtag like throwing dartboards. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's terrible. Sorry. This, by the way, is often what a writer's room looks yeah. and sounds yeah. like. <laughs> Gab, can you talk about <laughs> the, fir- the first season of writing a procedural? Because you were on Castle. There's a, who else was on Castle first season? Ah, let's talk about it. Um, talk about, t- because I mean, mostly the shows we're talking about here are, are serialized shows that are soaps uh, that, you, that go over a season or over the entire series and are telling one long story. But on Castle, there are elements of a longer arc, obviously, but... But in every episode, you have to establish the rules of what this procedural is going to be, what this show is going to look like uh, week to week. How do you find that uh, in a writer's room the first time you guys sit down? Well, it was, it was tricky on Castle because there was kind of a lot going on. It was, you know, finding your case of the week that was going to be interesting and then figuring out how Richard Castle was going to kind of get into that case because he was not a police officer. He was a consultant. Right. So um, it was kind of... It was interesting because you basically, I mean, I'm just trying to think of the first one that I wrote. We just kind of came up with a cool case and then said, all right, well, how, you know, what's going to happen that's going to get Castle's attention on this case? What, you know, and then you come up with something and then you dovetail him into the case and you go. But it's interesting because really most first-year shows, whether it's a doctor show or a cop show or a lawyer show or anything, probably the first 13 are going to be the most what we call standalone. We spend the most time working on, you know, just kind of a standalone case or a standalone medical condition or whatever. And like you were saying, then you kind of have some longer arcs. And then as the series goes on, the balance shifts a little bit, and it becomes a little more serialized, a little more personal, and a little less case-heavy. But um, it was weird kind of that year. I to like it. Because remember, there were two showrunners who didn't really like each other. Well, we one, had, one, uh, came from, yeah, one came from Law & Order, and so he didn't believe in a room. And then yeah. the other showrunner came from Features, and he wanted a room. So, like... It was very. It was, it was a weird mix because the Law and Order person obviously wanted the, um, you know, you to come in and pitch like, what's the case? You know, how's it going to go? How's it going to go? So you'd get all that, and then you'd go to the next guy and you'd be like, well, I don't care about the case. Like, how's how's Castle going to like flirt with someone in this scene? And they're like, well, I don't know. So then you'd kind of work on that, and then eventually you'd end up. And, and, and apropos of that, I also think that with with procedural shows, especially when you've got somebody who's a consulting detective, which is not a. Real job. Real thing? (laughs) (laughs) It's not a real job, and it's also like not an uncommon trope, is what I was going to say. Is if you ever watch the first season of those shows, there's always like just straining to how do we explain how Alison Dubois, Richard Castle, Sherlock Holmes is in this case, and then you'll find out that like second season, they're just like, oh, the hell with it, they're just on the case. that comes from, you know, there's always that kind of discomfort from sometimes network and studios, sometimes from someone inside the show who's going, but why are they here? And then eventually they're just like, the because the on. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> because we on a the lot poster. of money for Nathan Fillion and nobody wants to see the person who plays Stanikathic's boss running the case. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a betting game, like how long before... Richard Castle, you've been deputized. Here's your badge and your gun. See, we just wanted to put Castle in space the whole time, but <laughs> nobody wanted to do that. But, um, it, I mean, it but was, you were on Vampire Diaries the first season too, right, Gab? I was. And that was a really interesting year because you sort of redefined sort of the pace. You of, really did. And you know the act outs became really amped up, and it was a really interesting. And then you never were home, right? I was going to say the whole that whole year is just a fog. <laughs> I just have foggy memories of not. You, you guys had more stories. And individual scenes that most shows have in we episodes. We yeah. did. We packed story into that show. If anyone watches it, uh, we moved story along a lot. I think in the first two years of Vampire Diaries was like six years of any other show. You can really um, see soap. You know the trajectory of, oh, of yeah. serialized programming. It was. It was hit, like all my children like hit, a whole hit week that bump to an hour. When when you know when Vampire Diaries came and everything after it has has paced up considerably. Mm-hmm. I mean, did it burn you? guys out? I mean, how the heck do you do that? How do you keep that pace oh, up? The answer is yes. We, yeah. we completely, sure <laughs> completely burned out. But um, but no, I mean, it was, it was I have to say, Kevin and, and Julie, Julie Plack and Kevin Williamson, uh, who created the show, really had a vision for it and knew what they wanted 
wanted it and just boom went for it and it was kind of up for the rest of us to stay try to stay awake it was <laughs> no, I mean, God, hours were very long um, it was sometimes the problem with the showrunner sometimes can be if your personal like biological like you know rhythms don't um, basically Kevin only worked from about 8 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning well, because he's a vampire because so. <laughs> you know, he's a vampire interesting, it's interesting well because done. there has been there has been a correction because I remember around the time that, that I was working on Lost, there was a lot of talk of decompressed storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and then I wound up watching an episode, which I'll go nameless, where like a character is stuck in a train wagon for 15 minutes of airtime, and I'm watching him work a knot for five minutes out of that, and I'm like, what the hell? Move it on! Have someone talk about their feelings. I'll even settle for that, you know? Which I don't ever want to see happen, by the way. But that's got to be a cable show. The network will never let you do anything in one room. No, 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 but, 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 but I think that Vampire Diaries at Pacing Up was, mm-hmm. a, was a correction to TV kind of going really decompressed for a long time. Um, hey, Gab, can I ask you something about the, um, because you said, kind of joke that, or somebody said, uh, that um, you had like uh, several episodes in every episode. I was there season four, you were there season one. When I got there, Julie had come up with this way of sort of breaking down the season that I'm curious if you had in season one, where basically before we sat down to start breaking each individual episode, the season had been broken out into basically three acts like a movie. It was like, this. these eight episodes are the beginning, these are the middle, this is the end. So everything rose to a crazy climax, and we were basically doing three seasons in a season. season. Did you guys do that no, as well? No, we, I don't think she had started that yet. Um, and it's funny, I actually, I've done that on another show, and I kind of lo- always love that, because yeah. you, yeah. you really know what your giant temples are that you're going for, and um, it really does kind of force you to push story to get to that point. Um, no, yeah. I wish we had done that. Yeah, it's the most amazing way to tell a story because this year, Parenthood, we knew it was going to be our final season. And it was the biggest gift ever because the very first day back for season six, for our final season, we knew exactly how the show was going to end. And so then everything was just building to that end point. And that was like the biggest gift in storytelling was having an end. By the way, I just have one thing to say about Javi and Jesse. They were in the first year of Lost. And Javi wrote, Jesse told me about this, but Javi wrote a remarkable blog posting about what it was like to be on the first year of Lost, which I highly recommend. And you really should mention should what the you are. Oh, it's really fantastic. Yeah, it's like a master class. <laughs> the one thing I learned from that is how many people are shocked that a professional writer would write 17,000 words. <laughs> oh, my God, he wrote 17,000 words. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. I don't know. I've gotten e- Emails from you longer than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you should look it up. It's, up. Yeah. It's, it's the lost will and testament of. Uh, <laughs> no, that's what it's called. That's what it's actually called. Yeah. We we actually did something on uh, that uh, on the new Guardians of the Galaxy animated series that I've been working on, uh, similar to what uh, Jose was just what's, talking what's about. That about. Where we uh, I sat down with uh, our co EP Marty Eisenberg and we charted out from the beginning sort of four or five movements or story mini story arcs that would unfold over the course of the 26 episodes. So we knew where we wanted to end the season and we knew where we began the season and we'd say, like, these four or five episodes are going to be about this and then it's going to transition into this new thing and then it's going to transition into this thing and we could go into our story breaks and break each one of those acts of the season and uh, that was also something that Marvel Studios is really interested in because they've come to realize that children are some of the ultimate binge watchers. Yeah. Park them in front of Netflix and they just want to keep watching so that way they could market these call individual... call that parenting, mister. Yeah. <laughs> did you guys stick to the plan? Yeah, we did. And, and that way, so, you know, when the show comes on and ultimately ends up in streaming services, a kid can sit down and watch sort of a semi, a complete little story arc that unfolds over four to six episodes and kind of get a, get a complete thing. Jesse, um... Just talk, about, just talk about one more show, since I just love Alias so much. Can you talk about the first season of Alias a little bit? Um, talk about, because um, that, that was a big shift in t- doing action on television, uh, doing pace. I mean, you guys must have had 60, 70, 80 scenes in an episode when usually episodes have what? Drama episodes, 50, 60, and you guys must have had 100. I mean, that's a lot to shoot at one time. That's a lot of action. That's a lot of, that's a lot of storytelling. 
Uh, it was. That show was insane. It was crazy. It uh, had a ton of action in it, but it's really funny. We all we broke every episode. We would always say, you know, where is Sydney emotionally in this episode? Right. And it would be all about tracking Sydney emotionally and what was the core relationship that she wanted to do in that that. Uh, what was the core relationship we wanted to shine a light on in that episode? Um, because I, I've always found that it's it's relatively easy to come up with set pieces and action and the cool shit. And if you just if you focus on the characters emotionally, that that's when you're going to get the good stuff. Like you know that's you know Hannibal was a lot about just the 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 love story between you know Will and and Hannibal and and just trying to build everything around that and. Uh, you know, and then Lost it was Lost was a bit more mechanical about like what the situation was on the island, like trying to figure out you know where are they on the island, and then kind of think. Then we would back into whose flashback it should be um, to to shine a light on that story thematically. Um, but Alias, you know, was really heavily serialized and definitely had one of the problems that a lot of serialized shows ha- have and have had since is you kind of get wrapped up in your own mythology. So the show becomes, com- becomes completely unintelligible to anybody after season three. Right. Um, who, if you haven't been watching the show uh, throughout. Um, so that was a big shift for, uh, for us as storytellers to manage all that. And the network and the studio hated it. They couldn't stand it. They usually hate serialized shows because it's very challenging to give notes on them. Prefer a proce- <laughs> they prefer a procedural where it's like, oh, okay, this person died, why did they die? But, you know, a lot of these serials are so, you know, interwoven with the emotional lives of the characters that they can be very challenging for executives to manage. Well, one of the things is I think the, you, you, for a show that's on Netflix, you're picking up everyone who's watching House of Cards, there's no one going to turn on episode three of House of Cards and just start right there. You, everyone's starting from the beginning all the way through. But if you're watching Alias, you can... You, there's a certain percentage of your audience that's picking up right there for see the first episode. How important, or is it mindful in the room to teach the audience the show and... And, and are and are you guys attend? Are you guys especially in the first thirteen? I'm sure well, that's a alias, big task. Alias was pretty. You know, Alias had a specific structure with uh, set pieces and uh, design of the action. Right. So it, it definitely fell into that. You know, everybody. You know, everybody's. You know, comic book is somebody's first comic book. You're picking picking up an issue, and you can get it. Like, oh, they're searching for this device, or searching for this object, or something like that. In Alias. Um, but a number of the other shows that I've worked on have been a little bit more kind of elusive and just kind of go with the characters and are, are not quite as um, focused on making sure that people who tune in to that episode can, can connect with it. So, awesome. I don't know, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Kinda, All right, team. we got to wrap. Every show is different. Yeah, every show is different. Every show I've worked on has been completely different yeah. in terms of how we broke stories and what the culture was of the show and the relationship with the network. And everyone is this weird kind of chemistry that's so based on the what the who the people are in the room and how they get along with each other and you know that, that kind of stuff. By the way, if you want to if you want to watch an episode that's an education on how to catch up the audience while still telling a story that uh, a plot that advances the overall story, there's an episode that Jesse co-wrote of, of Alias season 1 called Q&A oh, yeah. which you guys should all absolutely watch. It's it's an education that that one episode is it's brilliant. All right, we right, night I've I'm getting like, oh, Jesus, I'm starting to have a flashback. Yeah. Crazy. Like, it was supposed to be a clip show. We're like, we can't do a clip show in season one of this. So we're like, okay, we'll do like a Q&A. So we'll spend a little bit of time in this room and catching you up on stuff. And then we'll have a present day story. Um, uh, oh, shit. But there was something I was going to uh, say so specifically about this, about catching people up. Um, I forgot. I can't remember what it was. All right, team. Well, we got to wrap it up. So before we do, Gab, can we just start down, come down this way? Let's shout out Twitter handle, right? And if you want to, and then, uh, you know, mention, this is promotion time, too. So mention something that you want to talk about as far as, like, hey, make sure you're watching. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one quick shout out. You, if you haven't, if you're not listening to Children of Tendu podcast by these two gentlemen right here, you absolutely must. It is a, it is a true must. Uh, okay. Gab, start us up. TV Gab is my uh, Twitter handle, and uh, tune into the Flash. 
on Scribble Jerk at Twitter. Uh, and da-, da Vinci's Demon Season 3 is pretty awesome. I just did that. And a new show called Agent X at TNT that's going to be on. Uh, I'm the Philistine who's not on Twitter. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, yeah. Sarah Watson, 42. That's Sarah with an H, and I'm not 42. It's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy thing. And um, please watch Parenthood, and then I'll be on the beaches of the south of France. Other than that. <laughs> Uh, you can find me as Ashmaster Zero. That's also my porn star name. <laughs> and that's what you should look for. Wait, no, don't. Uh, look for my novel that I wrote with my, uh, my writing partner, Zach Stentz. It's called Colin Fisher. Uh, so uh, my Twitter handle is OKBJGM. And, uh, okay, blowjob what? No, 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 no. It's, it's Russian for Experimental Design Bureau. Oh. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm going to be co-executive producing The 100. Woo! Uh, um, and uh, please listen to Children of Tendu. And also I've written a book about writing for television called Shoot This One. It's on Amazon. Look it up. You might enjoy it. Uh, I'm at Jose Molina TV. Um, and please, everybody, watch, email, tweet, talk about cosplay Agent Carter. Hopefully, hopefully, if everybody, everything aligns uh, correctly, hopefully that we'll hear some good news um, about season two, and that young lady over there will have a job, as, and so will I. <laughs> Melting. I'm at Stephen Melching, and you can see episodes of Transformers Robots in Disguise airing now on Cartoon Network. Awesome. And then starting uh, sometime early this summer, second season of Star Wars Rebels. And, uh, and then I'm consulting, produce, consulting producer on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy coming That's sometime later this awesome, year. Awesome, man. But how do you get on an episode every week? He listens to a lot of 70s music. Um, I'm at uh, Mark A. Altman on Twitter, but you should also follow the at Agent X Writers Room, Jesse, isn't that it? Agent X Writers Room? At Agent X Writers Room. And um, so Agent X is coming out later this year on TNT, and we think it's and hope it's going to be great. And then I also just wrote with Steve Krasier the remake of Life Force. Awesome. And I'm Chris F. Parnell. Watch Outlander tonight. Thank you, guys, and thanks, everybody here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Another wonderful job, Chris Parnell. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.